0: Well, good morning. Have a seat. You can grab your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 27 this morning. Acts chapter 27. As you're turning there, uh, you can um, I'll actually make an announcement at the end. So help me remember that. Uh, But I did want to say something about um, the uh, Miss Jean Stevens. Uh, She went home to be with the Lord on Thursday. And so we certainly are praying for her family. uh, Be praying with us. Uh, for her family, a godly lady. I uh, can only imagine what that moment was like. Um, we, she stepped into the presence of Jesus, and we're going to celebrate that on Tuesday. And uh, we look forward to that. Uh, the arrangements for the services has been emailed out to the church family. You should have gotten that, gravesite at 10 a.m. on Tuesday, service here at the church at 11, and then lunch to follow. If you need information about that, come see us. But we look forward to celebrating her, her life on Tuesday. All right, so uh, Hurricane Ida hit uh, the Louisiana um, shores last Sunday, right? Category 4 storm, and uh, we certainly need to pray for our relief teams. Uh, You see some people walking around today with uh, some yellow shirts on. They're part of disaster relief, Florida disaster relief. Uh, There's already teams who are out there who are working, and we pray for them, and then also pray for our teams, which I'm sure will be uh, headed that way soon. Uh, It's a great opportunity, by the way, for you to Uh, to serve and be the hands and feet of Jesus uh, over there. It's a great ministry for uh, those of you who are retired who can uh, still go do that type of work. Uh, So see somebody with a yellow shirt today. See uh, someone out in the concourse afterwards if you're interested. They'll be hitting the road very soon. Uh, But as I was reading an article about something that was going on during that storm, uh, evidently as the hurricane was coming up into Louisiana, a report uh, came in that more than 100 men were stranded on a drill ship in the Gulf of Mexico. An article that I found read, A crew on the Noble's Globetrotter II drill ship, uh, which is located about 100 miles from Louisiana shore, said that they rode out the storm as 80-foot waves and 150-mile-an-hour winds battered the ship. Uh, one crew member said, being on the top deck, you could look down to the glass and see the bottom of the rig at certain points in time. Uh, we had up to 80-foot seas, and we were getting hit. Uh, with them really bad. So the boat was uh, pretty much sideways and getting capsized uh, in water. And some way, somehow we didn't flip. And he continues. He said, I mean, I was watching uh, grown men with life jackets, hold on for dear life, crying in the hallway. It was that bad, which all these guys survived. And I'm sure they appreciate their buddy letting the world know they were crying in their, in their life jackets in the hallway. I would probably be crying in uh, my life jacket in the hallway as well. It's got to be a terrifying thing to go through. He said this, he continued, he said, they talking about the oil company, uh, got with us too late. We tried to run away, but it, the storm was right on our tail. There was no running from it. So we got hit with full force. It's a terrifying thing to imagine being in the middle of, um, you know, thankful for advance, advancements in ship technology. Uh, as that's probably what saved their life. Can you imagine being in the middle of a storm like that in ancient times 2,000 years ago in the middle of the Mediterranean, in the middle of a big typhoon just like that, uh, in a ship that's made of wood that's made uh, to hug the coast of uh, the the Mediterranean Sea? Well, for Paul, he doesn't have to wonder. He doesn't have to imagine. He actually experienced that. And uh, Luke records it for us in Acts chapter 27. So stand with your Bibles open, and I'm going to read a beginning in verse 13. I'm just going to read a couple excerpts from this text, and we're going to go back and walk through it together this morning. It says in verse 13, Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed across Crete, or Long Crete, Close to the shore, but soon a tempestuous wind, called a northeaster, struck down from the land. When the ship was caught and could not face the wind, uh, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Kata, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship, then fearing that it would run aground on the surdice, they lowered the gear, and thus were driven along. Verse uh, eighteen: Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo, and on the third day they drew the ship's tackle over, threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, we'll see that it's a total of fourteen days, and no small, small tempests lay on us. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. And then let's run all the way, run your eyes all the way down to verse forty-one. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. And the bows uh, stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill all the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to swim, uh, to jump overboard and first and to make, it, make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And, and this is the, my favorite part of the whole text, is the point of it. And so it was that they were all brought safely. To land, Would you have a seat as I pray? Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for an opportunity to be in your word this morning. I thank you for our church. I thank you for the ways that you're moving, the ways that you're working, ways that we can see, uh, so many ways we can't see. So we pray that your spirit, that he would move mightily in our hearts, that he'd encourage us and teach us this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, So this is a really, really cool story. I don't know if you've read Acts chapter 27 before. Uh, But it's a story that I want us to just uh, get caught up in this morning, all right? I want us to walk through it. Uh, Luke uh, lays out a very detailed account of Paul's voyage from Caesarea by the sea to Rome. And you'll notice uh, one thing I want to point out is you'll notice a lot of nautical terminology, a lot of sailing terms, all right? So it's good to know some of the basic terms like uh, that the back of the boat is called the stern at the front of the boat, it's called the bow, I don't know why they came up with those names, right? If I was naming the front of the boat, I would have called it the front of the boat, right? Back of the boat, I'd have called it the back of the boat. Uh, but those are, I guess, better better names. Um, but there's a little sailing terms like this in, in nautical terms as you move through this story. So we'll try to stop along the way and clear things up. Also, with stories like this, we need to be very, very careful, right? It's, it's easy to take a story like this, and a lot of people have done this. Take a story like Acts chapter 27 and just take it and go allegorically crazy with it. Right? And take every anchor and every rope and every plank and every piece of wood and uh, turn it into a metaphor for something uh, spiritual. All right? When the author intends for us to do that, we do that. Right? Uh, but we have to be careful. There are times to do it. Certainly in scripture, when you look at, um, you know, metaphors for the trials of life, we see fire used for that, uh, storms used for that, you know, prison cells and on and on. Um, but it, we have to be careful that we don't just take uh, every opportunity to grab every detail in a narrative in a historical account like this and turn it into something it's not meant to be, all right? So there's times where an anchor is an anchor, all right? A rope is a rope, all right? Or a piece of wood is a piece of wood, all right? So, uh, but, but overall, I believe that this is, is the physical storm, but I think it is meant uh, to, to kind of capture and picture for us storms that, that we go through in life, trials that we go through in life. And so we are going to look at it like that this morning. All right, there's three parts. We're going to divide this text into three parts or three points this morning. I'm going to go ahead and give you those right out here uh, up front. And here's the three points. Number one is this. We see saints swept away in storms. Saints stay steady and ready in the winds and waves. And then number three, saints arrive safely to shore. All right. Notice that I'm using that word saints there. Paul uses that when he addresses the uh, Ephesian uh, the, the Church in Ephesus that he uh, we 've seen him interact with uh, along the way in Acts, and he writes back to them and he calls them he says to the saints who were in ephesus all right that 's a title that they 're given that they 're set apart that they're that they have a title that they 're a new title in Christ that they 're seen positionally holy in the eyes of God, right so uh, I want to use that with these points because I want it to sink in as we move through this, that just because you're a follower of Jesus Christ doesn't mean you're immune from going through storms. In fact, it's a guarantee you'll go through storms. First point, saints are swept away in storms. Let's trace how Paul gets into his storm here. Let's begin to read in verse 1. Verse 1 says, And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to the centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. Um, And embarking in a ship of the uh, Adramidium, uh, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, uh, we put out to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. All right, so let's uh, talk about a few things here. So Paul has appealed to Caesar. Uh, hopefully you remember that from last week. Uh, the King Agrippa didn't even think he needed to go to Caesar. He was innocent, but there was something with the Roman law, I guess we don't really know for sure, that once you appealed to Caesar officially, To Caesar you will go. And so he's on his way. Uh, Rome is the center of the entire world at that time. All right? So the Gentile world. So Paul's excited to get there. Uh, He's a missionary. He wants to get there to preach the gospel. So center of the Gentile world. To Jews, it's at the end of the world. All right? So to get to Rome by sea from Caesarea... Right. If you get just to know how long it takes to travel there by sea in those days, if you get nothing but green lights, if you don't have anybody in in the car that's got to stop every 15 minutes for like a restroom break. Right. Youth, a.k.a. youth trips. Been there. Done that. All right. So if you don't, if it's just a smooth trip, smooth sailing, uh, you're looking at about five weeks on the sea that it's going to take you to get from Caesarea to Rome. You'll see in this uh, story, in this experience, it's going to take them much longer than that. As a Roman citizen, Paul was allowed to take some companions with him. So that's why he's got some ride-or-die buddies with him. Aristarchus is there. Aristarchus has been on some uh, adventures with him like this before. And you also know that Luke is here. Well, I don't see Luke mentioned here. Well, there's a lot of personal pronouns in this uh, account, uh, the personal pronoun we. And so we know Luke is writing this. Luke was on board, and he experienced all of this. Look at verse 3. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends to be cared for. Now, since those Roman centurions were known to, be, to have a, a high level of, of honor and, and dignity and, and would often treat prisoners well, but this says a lot about Paul. Paul was a peaceable person. And so we'll see that as we walk through this, but he allows Paul to go into this town where he finds some friends, probably believers, who give him some supplies. When you appealed to Caesar, you were paying for that trip, right? You were packing your own lunch. And so he went in and got some supplies for them from them to help him on the trip. Verse four: In putting out uh, to the sea, uh, from there we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, uh, because the winds were against us. All right, under the lee of Cyprus. When it when it phrases, uh, when when you see that phrase, under the lee, and it's usually uh, the name of an island. It's on the side of the island that's blocked from the wind. It was easier for them to navigate in that in those windy conditions. All right. Verse five: And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of uh, Cilicia. And Pamphylia, uh, we came to Myra uh, in Lycia, all right? And so uh, they're sailing along the northern coast. If you know that part of the world, the geography, they're, they're sailing across the, the, nor- the northern coast of, of, of Asia Minor. Uh, they land in Myra, so it's, it's modern-day Turkey. They land in Myra. And uh, it's there that they, they're really looking for a, a larger ship, all right, to uh, be able to take them all the way to Rome. And so there it says that they board a freight vessel, all right? So Rome imported like 250,000 tons of grain a year, all right, to, to make food um, and, and for that city. And so uh, they got most of that from Egypt. And so they're jumping onto one of these freight vessels. And it was a ship that was big. It was sturdy, way sturdier than the one that they were on, but rigid, not very comfortable, not a comfortable way to travel, all right? Paul is not in good conditions. This is, he's not getting a little pillow for his head. He's not getting a little screen on the, on the seat back in front of him to watch a movie on. No stewardess is coming up the aisle offering him some pretzels and if he wants ice with his diet, Coke, right? It's a, it's rough conditions, uh, but that's... It is what it is. And so off they go. Verse 7. It says, When we sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus, and as the wind did not allow us to go any further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off of uh, Salmon. Uh, Coasting along it with great difficulty, uh, we came to a place called Fairhavens, near which was the city of Lycia. All right. So if you looked at a map, again, um, they would hope to just, uh, you know, at the, at the southern coast of, of Turkey, they, hit, they get, get out of Myra. And then the idea is just to scoot across and go west and, and you know, hit Greece, the, the, the southern coast of Greece. And then it's on to Italy. So it's kind of a straight shot. Well, if the conditions were windy, you know, you were at the mercy of the winds. And so what they had to do is they had to kind of dip down out of Myra. They had to, instead of going straight across to modern-day Greece, they had to dip down underneath uh, the, uh, the island of Crete. Uh, on the lee side of that, where there wasn't any winds, where they could control the boat a little better. And then the idea was to hopefully loop up on the other side and off they would go again to modern day Greece and then on to Italy. The problem is they're moving really, really slow and they're running out of time. And they finally make it to a harbor town Uh, on on the southern coast about midway uh, across the island um, called uh, a harbor town called Fairhavens, all right? And so they make a pit stop there. And so let's see what happens. Verse nine, it says, since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over. That's the day of atonement. Paul advised them saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only the cargo and the ship, but also our lives. That's not a prophetic word, That's a word of common sense, right? Verse 11, but the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to Paul, um, than what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to the sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. And so Paul, Paul speaks up. Paul is not a rookie on the sea, right? He's a seasoned um, sea traveler, a lot of frequent sailing miles uh, on Paul's account. Uh, he's already been in two shipwrecks. 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians 11.25 says he was in three total. This is going to be his third. Uh, spoiler alert. All right. Uh, he looks at his watch as they are coming into Fair Havens. And again, Fair Havens is there on the southern coast, about midway th- across the coast on this uh, island uh, of Crete. And he looks at his watch and he realizes it's, it's David Tomat's past. That They're in October. Anybody in that part of the world, knew, don't be on the water anywhere in that area uh, during this time in the winter because the, the conditions are awful because a lot of people died if they tried to sail during that time of the year. So Paul hears, he hears this conversation happening between the, the soldiers and the, the, the sailors and the captain, all right? And basically the captain's speaking up, all right? And he, he wants them not to stay in fair havens. He wants them to scoot down the coast just a little bit, down the coast of Crete to another harbor town called Phoenix. Who don't want to spend winter in Phoenix, right? So you can hear him talking, can't you? Like, listen, guys you do not listen we do not want to stay in fair havens we're about to to tide the ship we weren't hoping that this would happen but we've taken a long time we're going to have to kind of just uh, camp out here for a few months for the winter but you do not want to spend winter in in fair havens all right it's podunkville right? All they got there, they got a Motel 6, they got a McDonald's, they got a 7-Eleven and a huddle house. You don't want to stay there. If we just scoot down the coast a little bit, we can make it to Phoenix, all right? Phoenix has a Holiday Inn Express. Phoenix, free free Continental breakfast every morning, right? Phoenix has a Chick-fil-A. Phoenix has a Bucky, 7-Eleven. Just scoot down the coast a little bit, man. And Phoenix doesn't have a huddle house, it has a Waffle House. And about that time, someone's like, Captain Jack has a point, all in favor of going to Phoenix, say, aye. everybody says, aye, And Paul just shakes his head. And then it says in verse 13, now when the south blew gently, so they vote to head on down to Phoenix, shouldn't be a a very long trip. It says when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Creek close to the shore. Well, it starts out good. You can kind of see the captain kind of smirking a little bit. Looking over at Paul Fair Havens, Paul, just wait till we get to Phoenix. The rookie over here, old Paul, doesn't know what he's talking about. Yeah, listen to the captain, Paul. Hey, you be the convict, I'll be the captain, right? You be the passenger, I'll be the pilot. And all of a sudden, the wind starts picking up. All of a sudden, rain begins begins to fall. And before they know it, they're caught up in what's called a northeaster, which is essentially a hurricane. The Greek word is typhoonikos, all right? It's the, where we get our word typhoon from. And the winds and the waves become so violent, it begins to take over their boat to the point where they only have the choice to just pull down their sails and to let go of the wheel and be at the mercy of the winds and waves. And so they let go of the wheel and it pushes them down to the lee side of a small little island that's south of Crete. And there's a point where they managed to pull in the rescue boat, which was important. You don't want to lose that. You're going to need a rescue boat off of that big ship to get into some of those rocky shores. They tie chains around the ship to ma- to try to... Um, you know, save it from falling to pieces, and then they lower a drag anchor, which wasn't an anchor to keep them, uh, you know, to stay put. It was actually meant to slow them down so they would stop drifting because it says that they were afraid that they were going to drift uh, into what's called Sirtis, which was an area, if they kept drifting south, they were afraid they were going to get off the coast of Africa, which there's a place called Sirtis, which is a long stretch of, of water that's filled with reefs and sandbars, and it's a graveyard for ships. The ship's taking on water. They're throwing things overboard. They're trying to lighten the ship. And it says in verse 20, what does it say? The mood on the boat is just utter hopelessness. They're in a storm. They're in a bad storm. So I want to talk about storms for a moment. And the first point is this. I wanna, I'm talking to believers this morning. I want you to listen to this. What we learn as we see Paul sailing into a storm is we learn a truth that when saints follow God's will, you just set your clock; it's going to put you right in the middle of a storm. We're not promised that when we come to Jesus that it's smooth sailing. No, it's actually on the contrary. When you look at Paul's life, when he comes to Christ, things actually get worse. You said Paul Paul has one bad day after another bad day; It gets much more difficult. And we've got to be careful, believers, when things don't go right, when we experience trials and we experience storms, we can have some wrong thinking. One, one wrong thinking that I want to point out, and, and I'm talking to, to Christians, it's, 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 a, it's a commonly, uh, you know, it's a, it's a wrong way of seeing storms in that when something wrong happens in your life, we often can see that storm that we're in that we didn't ask for is, man, this, this has got to be connected to something that I did wrong in my past. And this is, I knew that the college fraternity party days were gonna catch up with me. This is what this is, right? I knew this was me paying for something that happened. And if you think that way, what you're doing is you're allowing the, this culture's worldview to leak into your worldview and to make it way less biblical than it should be. God is not Buddha. God has not set up the world to operate on karma. You know why Paul's in trouble? Paul's in trouble because he's being obedient. Paul's in trouble because he's in the center of God's will. It is true that there are times, hey, and you may be there this morning and you'll need to allow God to work in your heart and to repent and to change if this is you because you can sail into waters at times because into stormy waters because of sin, because of bad decisions that you make, consequences attached to sins. There can be times where you're in storms of God's judgment because of things that you've done. That's not what's going on here. When we get to those places in Scripture, we'll look at that and we'll make that point. Paul's in the middle of this storm because of his obedience. When saints follow God's will, it will put you at some point in the middle of a storm. It could be a storm even this morning. By the way, you're either as a believer coming out of a storm, in a storm, or about to be in a storm. You may be in a storm this morning. It could be a storm related to your health. It could be a storm related to the death of a loved one. It could be a storm related, like an emotional storm. It could be a bouts of deep loneliness or, or depression. It could be a financial storm. It could be a storm of, of losing a job, the loss of a relationship. And you need to recognize this morning in your heart that as a follower of Christ, we are not shielded from the storms of, of, of this life. In fact, it's God's will, the will of God that will lead you as a believer right into the eyewall of a hurricane. Some of like, well, I'm glad I came to church this morning. That's encouraging for me to hear. Thank you for that. But I do hope that this encourages you. As we see that when we think about storms, we're not just acknowledging that there's an inevitability in our life of of sailing into storms as Christians. No, I want you to leave with your heart encouraged and full of hope because what Paul shows us is that in the middle of the storm, we can actually be steadied and ready to be used by God. Second point, saints stay steady and ready on the winds and waves. Let's keep reading verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me. <laughs> Told you so. And not have set sail from Crete uh, and incurred this uh, injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only uh, of the ship. For this very night, there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and to whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. But we must run aground on some island. If you lean in right here the next few minutes with a teachable heart, there is a lot to learn from Paul about steadiness and readiness in the middle of a storm. Now, what we see when we look at Paul's life and see his understanding of storms is not just what we see here in this story. In fact, you see it even more clearly in other places in scripture. where We see him suffering, where we see him in prison, where we see him uh, being beaten, where we see him enduring storms of life. But what you see in Paul throughout his life when it comes to storms is you see that he has a deep sense of God's sovereignty over that storm and his purposes and his sovereign purposes within the storm, all right? So he, he sees God as sovereign over the storms of his life. So in his heart, it is rooted in the truth that God is sovereign over the storm that they are in, and that God's actually sovereign over him being taken into the middle of the storm. This is something that all the disciples grasped. In fact, they were given a, a very memorable object lesson as they went through their own storm. Do you remember Mark chapter 4? Do you remember what Jesus said? Uh, does with the disciples. And have you ever noticed whose idea it was for them to go across the Sea of Galilee that day they got caught in the storm? It was Jesus's. Jesus is standing on the shore. It's not a very big, uh, the Sea of Galilee is almost like a lake. It's like six miles by 12 miles. It would have taken a half day's journey just to go around the lake. They could have avoided the storm. Jesus, he's a son of God. He could have tapped into the weather channel. He could have, he could have known that. He, he certainly he knew that a storm was coming. And yet he said, let's get on that boat and let's go to the other side. And they walk through that experience, and we won't walk through that whole narrative this morning, but they get to the other side and they learn a lesson. And later on, Peter, one of those disciples who was impacted that day and learned about storms, later writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it tested by fire, may be found to result praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know what Paul learned that day? I'm sorry, Peter learned that day on, that, uh, on the Sea of Galilee. What the disciples learned and what Paul has learned through the storms of his life is that storms are essential and needed in our lives for us to grow, Amen. for us to be sanctified. As painful as it feels, I want you to... to, to to anchor your heart into that this morning, that it, it feel, your feelings are horrible guides. Your feelings would tell you that you don't belong in that storm and you need to get out of that storm. That's normal because they're humans and those are emotions. But there's gotta be a faith down beneath that in your heart that believe, that that understands, listen, I can't listen to my feelings right now. right now. I have to anchor my heart in truth and believe that even though it feels like I'm being torn apart, even though it feels like I'm being run down, even though it feels like I'm being ripped apart to smithereens and my life is falling into, ruins, that God is at work. Amen. It's like a, a good football coach. Yesterday, I'm sure some of y'all were happy to see some more college, fo- some college football back on TV. Um, and as you see those players, you know, in just great shape, making plays, um, running across the field, what you don't see is you don't see them feeling like they're about to die when they show up for spring workouts earlier in the year. And the coach runs them through drills and basically tears all their muscles down so that they can be built back up. I mean, it gets them to the place where they can't barely even walk, but it's a necessary part of the process of being built up and strengthened. And storms and pains and trials, Christian are a necessary part of you being built up and more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Storms prune us. Storms strip away things that don't belong. Uh, They strip away what's phony. They strip away weak, superficial, me-centered faith that tends to only want to worship God when things go right. And if you're gonna be steady in the storm with eyes of faith in your heart, you gotta lift your eyes and you gotta see that there's a sovereign God over that storm. There's a sovereign God who led you into that storm and who has sovereign purposes for your life in that storm. And within the storm, you need to anchor your heart in the truth of his never failing rock solid word that never fails to come true. So Paul stands in the middle of these guys who are hopeless and his heart, hey, his heart's tethered to something else. His heart's anchored to, to other truth. He's standing on a different kind of ground. He's standing on the promises of God. And he's in the middle of hopelessness. I mean, those guys, that part of the Mediterranean is littered with the, the ruins of ships and the, and the skeletons of, soldiers, or skeletons of uh, sailors from that part of the, the world and in that time in history. And Paul stands up in the middle of that hopelessness, in the middle of that storm, and calm and collected and steady. First of all, he says, I told y'all so. I think that's pretty funny, right? He said, I told y'all so. He said, y'all should listen to me, man. Huddle house back in Fairhaven's don't sound too bad right now, does it? You know? And he's not rubbing that in their face. He's actually establishing credibility. You know, he's, he's saying this. He's saying, hey, take heart. Nobody's dying. Nobody's dying. Tonight, an angel of God, a messenger came to me with a divine revelation from God to whom I belong and worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You will stand before Caesar and all the guys on this ship are gonna survive. You guys take heart. For I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. Do you have that kind of faith this morning? Do you have the kind of faith that God's sovereign over your storm? And are you standing on the promises of his word in the middle of your storm. The steadiness you see in Paul's life is a result of him standing on those promises. Are you standing on promises in the middle of your storm this morning? Are you standing when when the storm takes everything else away? Do you realize there's always promises there to latch onto? There's always promises to stand on. Storm can't take those away. Standing on those promises within the storm make you steadfast through the storm and are actually used to help you grow more into the image of Jesus Christ. Are you standing on promises in the middle of your storm like the truth that he will never leave you, he'll never forsake you? That God is in the middle of that intense storm with you. You know what that means? It means like, Job, if I lose everything in the middle of the storm, absolutely everything, the truth is in Christ, I still have everything because I still have Christ. You never lose God. You never lose his word. He never loses you. Are you standing on that promise this morning? If you stand on that promise in the middle of a storm, it'll make you steady. Are you standing on the promise that the winds and the waves and the tribulation and the persecution in this life that can beat you up? That no storm, that no trial, that no person, that no enemy can snatch your soul out of the mighty hand of God. That Jesus came and has already done for you what you couldn't do for yourself and now you belong to God forever. No matter how you feel, no matter how far you've wandered this morning, if you are a believer, you need to get right with God and you need to draw back close to your heavenly father and restore that fellowship. But it's a done deal. Jesus said, it is finished, right? The the veil's been torn. The relationship's been restored in Christ Jesus. If you've thrown the full weight of your faith on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, right? You're like, well, I feel like a problem sometimes. Well, you're his problem. He's not giving up on you. You're in his family. Your son or your daughter of the king. And you can stand on the promises this morning, even in the middle of the storm, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Are you standing on that promise in the middle of the storm? Are you standing on the promise again that what you're going through, God's going to use it for your good? That for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. In the middle of the storm, are you latching on to promises? This is a story that reminds us to trust God, to take him at his word, and to stand on the promises of God. I love this hymn, standing on the promises that cannot fail. When the howling storms of doubt and fear assail, by the living word of God I shall prevail. Standing on the promises of God. That is what Paul is doing what he's doing is he's actually standing on a specific unconditional promise that was delivered to him by Jesus himself in Acts chapter 23, verse 11, and here in verse 24, by a messenger angel from God. And Paul's like, listen, God has told me this. I'm standing on this. And if God has said it, he's going to keep his word, which is really the dominant idea in this text. He's saying, if God has said it, you can stand on it. You can bank your life on it. Well, let's look at verse 27. When the 14th night had come, as so we were driven across the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing the land. They took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little further away on, the, uh, on they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And, and fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down uh, four anchors from the stern um, and, and prayed for days to come. Those are those uh, anchors people like to turn into points, but I'm not sure you're supposed to do that. Um, Fourteen days they've been in the storm. And those ancient sailors, their senses were heightened. It was amazing how in the middle of all the noise, in the middle of the noise of that hurricane, all of a sudden they hear a different noise and they put two and two together and realize that the slapping sound they hear are the waves, those big waves crashing against the rocks on, the, on a shore. And so they take a sounding, which is they take a, a, a heavy piece of lead on a rope and they drop it down into the sea and it hits ground and then they do it again. And... um. What's the, uh, the measured terminology that they use there? Fathoms is it's about a six-foot span. And so they're, they're finding that it, it gets shallower and shallower, which is good news and bad news. They're really excited because they've been out on the sea for a while. They've drifted really far away from where they thought that they were going. Um, and yet, um, you know, we get an idea of where this is at. You know, the, if you think about geography... Um, you know the boot, the, the Italy-shaped, you know, boot down at the bottom of that. You have an island uh, that's called Sicily. That's kind of like a, a ball that the boot's kicking. And then 60 miles south of that is the island where they've drifted to. And so they're getting close to this island. It's called Malta. And again, it's exciting because they know lands there. It's terrifying because Malta, the, the rocky shores there. They still don't have control of the boat. They've tried to put anchors uh, down into uh, down into the, the sea floor but there's still a great chance that they'll uh, crash against the rock and could very well die. Look at verse 30. As the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. And the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. So these sailors would have used the skiff or this rescue boat to go out and to drop these anchors to keep the ship uh, in place to try to make it not crash against the rock. And they came up with a plan. They said, hey, man, we got the skiff. Let's just stay in the skiff and head on for the shore, right? Uh, we know it's right there. Let's just go for it. And so they pretend they're working on the anchors and they leave the ship. And Paul turns and tells the centurion, if the sailors don't stay on the ship, you cannot be saved interesting remark because you're thinking, well, wait a second. I thought the, the, the promises that they're going to make it to, to shore safely. Well, what's Paul worried about the sailors being back on the boat? He has common sense. Right. He knows God's in control and that God's plans are going to happen, but that don't mean you put your common sense on the shelf. Paul's not a fatalist. He knew he's going to end up in Rome because God gave him his word that he'd end up in Rome. But he also knows that he has a responsibility in real time as a human being to make good decisions. It's a great reminder, standing on the promise that God's going to finish the work that he started in you, Philippians chapter 1. That doesn't mean you don't have work to do. It means God will accomplish that work through disciplined prayer. God will accomplish that work through disciplined Bible study. God will accomplish that work and accomplish that promise that he will do in your life through good decision making. Well, the centurion listens to Paul. And again, there's, um, Paul has an audience with these pagan guys. And it's interesting that the convict has now become the captain. Paul's got an audience here, an influence. The centurion listens to him. He orders the soldiers. And what the soldiers do, they don't use a lot of common sense. They grab the swords and they just chop the rope to the skiff. And there goes the rescue boat. And Paul's like, maybe we should have used the swords just to get the guys back on the boat. There goes our rescue boat. And so I don't want you to lose sight of how this is still a very grim picture. They're, they're close to... The shore, they, don't, they can't really see exactly where they are. They know there are a lot of rocks and this big ship is just bouncing all around and it's still a coin toss as they, even if these guys are gonna survive through the eyes of these pagan sailors. Verse 33, as day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food. Today is the 14th day that you've continued in suspense without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food for it will give you strength for not a hair. Here it is again, the promise. For not a hair is to perish from your head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship throwing out the wheat into the sea, again, trying to lighten the ship so it doesn't run on the rocks or the reef, all right? So the possibility of death, and if you've ever been in a situation where you're grieving, it can take your appetite away. And these guys have been out on rough waters. They've had a very difficult 14 days. The adrenaline's been pumping. They've been hopeless, and they haven't had a lot of appetite. They're famished. They, they're, they're weak, and so Paul stands up, he's gonna inject a little hope in the room because he's a man standing on the promises of God's word. He's a man who's got a different kind of hope. And so he stands up in the middle of this room and he basically says, guys, wake up. Everybody look at me. Y'all need to eat your Wheaties. Y'all need to eat breakfast. Y'all need to eat some food. You guys aren't looking very good, right? No, look at me, guys. It's going to be fine. Nobody's going to be lost. I promise the, the God that I belong to, he told me nobody's going to be lost and nobody's going to be lost. He keeps his word. So you guys need to eat. You're going to be okay, man. Scramble up some eggs. Fry some bacon. Put some biscuits in the oven. Cook up some gravy. We need to eat. And then all of a sudden, do you notice what happens? First, he takes the, the biscuit in front of them, he or the bread, and he breaks it and he thanks God for it. And there's something attractive about his faith right here. It just interjects the room with hope. You can kind of see the atmosphere changing. It says they were encouraged. They began to eat food for themselves, many. Maybe you could even hear them begin to talk a little different, the tone of their voice. Maybe you hear a little laughter. And this is very important as you're staying steadied and readied in the storm. Paul has not lost a very important focus in the storm. And that's this, Paul is a man standing on the promises of God. He's a Christian who has his eyes set on the truth that God's sovereign over the storm and sovereign in bringing him in the storm, that he's using the storm to grow him. But he's also seeing storms as God arranging opportunities for him to show people hope that they don't have, that he has because of his relationship with Jesus Christ. Listen, when it comes to the storms of life, We are no different than the other people that we're around who don't have a relationship with Jesus who are walking through those same storms. What I mean by that is our storms are not necessarily unique to the storms they go through. People around us, same problems, same cancer, same heartbreaking issues with family and kids. But what makes this different? What makes the believer different in the middle of the storm? The same storm that people around them who are pagan, people who are lost, people who don't believe in God at all, who are also experiencing. What makes this different? I'll tell you, it's not this. It's not that we don't have the same feelings of feeling scared because we're human. We feel scared. It doesn't mean that we're not fearful. It doesn't mean we feel tired. I'm certain Paul felt that along the way. I'm certain even Paul, because he's human, with a nature just like ours. There was times where he felt like giving up. What makes us different? Here's what's different is those are emotions that we also share with them in the storms that we also share with them. But the difference is, is we don't get overwhelmed by those. We're more overwhelmed by the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. When you have a hope like that, people take notice. It's a powerful way to bear witness to the gospel. Listen, the biggest impact, the biggest gospel impact you will ever have in your life as a believer is as a fellow traveler in a storm with somebody. Because people watch. People are paying attention to your life right now as you walk through a storm, it could be a health storm. A health storm in which you as a believer, even with tears running down your face and with the same emotions of wondering, God, what are you doing and where am I going and why is this happening to me? You're able to say with a heart anchored in truth and standing on the promises of God, you're able to say, hey, I may feel sick in my body. I may have pain in my body, but my spirit is filled with hope because his word says that one day he's going to wipe away every tear from every eye. One day I'm going to get it. I'm going to get a brand new body. I'm going to be in the presence of Jesus, and just that's going to be just an amazing thing. But I'm also going to be. I'm going to be experiencing a pain-free existence. A financial storm. You know what makes you different when you, along with somebody who is lost, you lose your job. Is the kind of hope that comes out of you. I'm going to be okay, man. It hurts. I don't feel like I got a fair shake. I feel like I've been treated poorly. But I'm going to be okay. Because I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. Maybe you're here this morning in you go you're walking through a storm. Maybe you're a young couple. It's been three, four years you're trying to have a baby. Multiple miscarriages. And with tears running down your face, with a heart that's broken, with a heart of faith, you can still, because of the hope we have in Jesus Christ, you can say, bless the Lord, all my soul, who redeems my life from the pit and crowns me with steadfast love and whose mercy satisfies me with good. That's the kind of hope that makes us different. Are you glowing with that kind of hope? We look at Paul, we see Paul in the same storm experiencing the same feelings and emotions, I'm sure those other travelers, but whose heart is rooted in God's word that he knows cannot fail. And what happens because of his relationship with God and his word is when his life is squeezed with the rest of those those pagan sailors and prisoners and that centurion and that pilot, when his life is squeezed, something else comes out. What comes out is a lot of hope, a lot of fruits of the spirit and a lot of gospel light that gets a lot of people's attention in that boat. How are you doing with this? I asked, uh, invited our Wednesday night crowd a couple weeks ago to evaluate how steady and ready they are in the storms that are happening right now in our culture, and our world. You know, we are in the same waters as a lot of people really Everybody else in our culture and in the world that's dealt with a lot of challenges over the last year and a half. Church, this is a time, you know what I'm talking about, right? I'm just talking about the changes in our culture. This is a time when our faith's being tested. We're in stormy waters. And let me just ask you, as, as your comforts have been messed with, as your conveniences have been taken away, as you feel like your life has been shaken, as people's lives are being squeezed with trying circumstances along with the rest of the world, here's what's disheartening is that when you look in the lives of a lot of professing believers, what you don't see squeezed out of their life is a lot of fruit that's consistent with New Testament Christianity. Not a lot of Christian virtue, not a lot of fruits of the spirit. Not a lot of evidence of people who trust in the promises of God. Not a lot of things that you see coming out of our Lord and Savior, being crucified on the cross, being squeezed in the most fierce storm that anybody has ever experienced as he's absorbing the wrath of God for our sin. And what is squeezed out of his life in that moment, something that those soldiers and the people around would never forget. Father, forgive them. For they don't know what they do. Love. Love. The same fruits of the spirit we're called to produce come pouring out of his life. Where's our hope? Some of us, dare I say, maybe some of us are doing a little better at this, but I think some of us, including me this week as I'm studying this, some of us may need to stop in the middle of some trying times and just fall at the feet of Jesus and say, God, Oh, and the gospel frees you to just admit your weakness. They say, God, as things have gotten harder, I've not gotten holier. As things have gotten more difficult, I've gotten more whinier. I've gotten more ornery. I've gotten more lazy. And I'm asking you to prune me. I'm asking you to shape me because I've lost sight of my king. I've lost sight of, of the promises of your word. And I've also lost sight of something really, really important that you can't lose sight of that will help you sail through storms faithfully. And it's this very last point that I'm just basically going to say a few words on as we see saints arrive safely to the shore. We read part of that last part of the chapter, but I want to read it again. It says, verse 39. And when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore, So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach, striking a reef. They ran the vessel aground, the bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and to make it for land, make for land, and the rest on planks or pieces of the ship, and so it was that they were all brought safely to land. visibility comes clear enough for them to be able to see a part like a, a small beach area, and off they go. they lift their anchors and they begin to sail that ship in and that floating prison cell begins to break apart and these soldiers get, they panic because if your prisoner escapes and his punishment was death, well, you're going to die. So they begin to plan to kill these uh, prisoners. And Julia steps in probably because of his love and appreciation, another sermon for another day on how he wins people over even his enemies. And he says, don't do that. And I wonder if Paul gets back on the shore and has another like loving, I told you so. Guys, I told you. I told you so. It happened just like God said it would. I love this scene right here. These men crawling onto the shore. We're gonna look at this a little next week. These natives begin to build fires. Think about how much, how, how much relief that brought them. These guys that have been out there on sea, with sea legs, being out on the, on the sea for 14 days and all those waves and the storm and the winds, drenched just with um, cold rainwater week after week. And here they come onto the shore They feel that land under their feet and they begin to to gather around the fire. It had to be a sense of relief. And it's a great reminder for us and a great picture of an incredibly important truth that your heart has got to be wrapped around in believing in if you're gonna make it through storms, steadied and readied. And it's this, this world is not your home. Believer, this world is not your home. I believe so many so-called believers, so many professing Christians get crushed in the middle of storms because their hearts are not convinced of this. This world is not your home. Remember that verse in Amazing Grace, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come, tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. God's grace is going to lead us home. He's going to take us through toils, dangers, and snares. He's going to lead us home, but listen, this world is not it. This world is not home. We don't just live for this life. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Listen closely. If you have all of your hope in what Christ can do for you, only in this little vapor of your life, the 78.54 years that you may live on this planet, He's saying you are to be pitied more than the most immoral pagan on the face of this earth. We're believers. We believe and see beyond this world and see eternity. We see the resurrection, we see our future. There's something powerful about knowing the future. There's something powerful about knowing the future. Another illustration I used on Wednesday night recently is uh, back to the future. Anybody seen back to the future? Yeah. So I think it's back to the future too when they go into the future and, and Biff, who's like the bad guy, he, he has flipped into the future and got a sports almanac and then goes back and gambles on all the games. And then they go back into the future and he's like the richest man. He's like the evil ruler of, of the world. If you had not seen it, it's a good movie. You should see it. And as a kid, I remember seeing that and going, that's a good idea. I need to go in the future and give me a sports almanac. Then I can be rich, you know? That's kind of an evil way to look at it. But is it not true that there's something powerful about knowing the future? That's why that story resonates, resonates. There's something powerful about knowing the future that can shape and inform and strengthen you in the presence. Guess what? As a Christian, you don't have to wonder about your future, You know your future. Paul knew his future. That's what gave him steadiness. Paul knew his future. That's what gave him hope. And as a believer, the, the Bible tells you what the future is for you. That there's coming a day that Jesus Christ will return. And he's not returning as the lamb who will be slain. He's returning as the conquering king, as the lion to rule and to reign Over the new heavens and the new earth forevermore. And if you know Him, you will serve there with Him in your resurrected body and worship Him and glorify Him forever and ever and ever in an existence that's free from the power of sin, and free from the penalty of sin, and free from the presence of sin. Get your mind into the future, get your heart into the future. Get your heart into the eons and eons and eons of where you're going to spend eternity in the future, beyond this life, beyond this world. Lift your eyes. Lift your eyes and see that and see if that doesn't change the way that you live in the winds and waves. This world's not our home. One day you will make it to that shore. I love that. I am trying to end by you thinking once again about that picture. Those guys crawling onto that shore. Right? You just hooping, and hollering, and high fiving, gathering around the fires. Right? I can hear them laughing. One go over here kissing the sand. One go over here giving a Rick Flair. Woo! Just they made it. Listen, that doesn't begin to capture the infinitely greater relief and joy that you're gonna feel when your feet touch down on the other side of Jordan. Get your heart. Get your heart there. And see if that doesn't impact the way that you walk through storms here. Let's pray.